Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for June 2011. I am writer-critic-Thomas Caldwell cleaning apparatus, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... <laughs> Hi there. I'm um, writer-director-school for gifted mutants, uh, Paul Anthony Nelson. And with us today is our special guest. Uh, hello, my name is Guy Davis. I am a writer-columnist-columnist. Hyphen- would-be screenwriter, uh, hyphen, featured extra in the Hugo Weaving, uh, Aaron Jeffrey, Tony Martin film, The Interview. Bam. <laughs> Under my stage name, Robert Davis. <laughs> okay, we're going to seek that out and find the exact time code that you appear in <laughs> and post on the website. <laughs> yes, look, look for the hand putting the gun in the holster. <laughs> nice. It was you all along. <laughs> Spoiler alert, but there you go. <laughs> Well, the films of this month, speaking of uh, gifted mutants, as, as Paul did, the... Uh, I should have said gifted youngsters, because if you're a mutant, you're gifted. Let's just, let's just draw a line under that. That's true. That is very true. <laughs> now, look, I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of prequels, by and large, but for me, yeah, X-Men First Class is a contender for the best of the franchise. I absolutely agree. Yeah? Yeah, and I hate prequels. I, oh, I, the whole concept of prequels offends me, and X Men First Class knocked me for a loop. We are in agreement on the prequels uh, matter, unless we are, of course, we are talking about Robert De Niro and Godfather Part Two. <laughs> uh, but I am I concur with both of you, gentlemen, in the fact that uh, X Men First Class was very, very enjoyable. It, it was probably for me the first quote-unquote blockbuster of the season that actually just felt like, and this may sound like I'm damning it with faint praise, just breezy, uncomplicated fun. Absolutely. Mm. I, I described it as the giddiest blockbuster I've seen in a year. It's just it's just so much fun. Um, from the mm. retro feel to... Mm. Um, it's It's got a real cheeky, sort of almost cheeky, chappy Brit kind of sense mm. of humour, which I yeah. think comes from director Matthew Vaughan and co-writer um, Jane Goldman. Um, yeah, it's look. It's got, it's got it does have a few clunky moments, and there are a few question marks over some of the s- structure that I have over how some of the script was structured. But uh, by and large, I think it's you know pretty close to great. Mm. And I got to say, like I love Fassbender, but James McAvoy walked away with the film for me. I keep was, forgetting how much I like McAvoy until I see him on screen. It's mm. like that's right. I love this guy. Mm. I have to agree. Yeah, I mean, I going in i was uh, very primed to uh, sort of worship at the altar of fassbender but uh, i was very taken with just the the really the light bright energy that mcavoy brought to it the it feels weird sort of using this term in connection with Prof- professor xavier but the sexiness that yeah. he brought to it it also feels feels weird me saying james mcavoy is sexy but <laughs> hey i'm confident <laughs> enough to say that but, <laughs> But he, he just had that. That's really good because I had a total horn for Hasp- <laughs> fast. <laughs> well, that goes without saying. I mean, you're a sentient human being. You will have erotic feelings towards Michael Fassbender. You guys remember time. Emma Frost was walking around half naked for this film, right? Yeah, except yeah, it was, except it was except played it was by January January Jones. Jones. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, who man. was you know occasionally acting, thinking, <laughs> <laughs> which which basically you know is her sort of putting on that slight scowl that we saw that we've seen ad nauseum in Mad Men, mm. occasionally in Unknown. Um, mm. yeah, yeah, exactly. I I found I actually found um, Jennifer Lawrence mm. more magnetic, it, both in terms of her sort of fun performance, but also in terms of her look. I thought she was much much more of an attractive presence than yeah. than uh, Jones's Frost. But I love the character relationships in this. I thought mm. they were all very strong and very um, 
unusually faithful to the source material, but also to the it was a tr- it was walking a tricky line of continuity between the movie continuity and the comic book continuity. I think it managed it really well. As you say, Lee, it does get a little flabby, particularly in the second half. Um, but I, I think in terms of the relationships and the way uh, the, the 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 tone of the film, mm. I mean, there are little things I loved about it. I love the music score. I love. Magneto's pounding theme whenever he showed up. Yeah, yeah. And I loved the um. I loved that they did a the an instrumental remix of Niles Barkley's run over the recruiting sequence. <laughs> That's what <laughs> I was thinking of that. just then because I rewatched uh, a scene on YouTube not long ago. I don't know if we're allowed to sort of talk about spoilers at this stage or anything like that. Or, I mean, when I when I came out of it, uh, one of the, something I posted on Facebook immediately was. Um, do not reveal the surprise cameo. Yes. Oh. Yeah, I don't think we should reveal it because it's <laughs> no. so. I'm I'm surprised it's remained secret to yes. this time. Yeah. It's very impressive. Yeah. 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 Um, A few people have name checked it, but uh, no, we'll we'll keep it silent. And I mean, because you're just not expecting Batman to show up, and it's just one of those <laughs> whoa moments. Yeah, I was thinking uh, Moonboy cameo. Wow, Marvel really reached back. No, but <laughs> what's Rom Space Knight doing in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> but also the best. PG thirteen one f bomb. Yes, yeah, yeah probably, probably the in best one of its kind since um, the only good moment in the Get Shorty sequel. Be cool. That right. was that was there was probably, a good moment in that. There really? was. It I was don't the, remember that. Yeah, the um, <laughs> yes, the only f bomb that were that was allowed in the PG thirteen. Um, be cool and Travolta dropped it just perfectly. So, okay. Yeah. I if would... you must rewatch Be Cool, and I don't recommend it. Um, <laughs> Wild horses couldn't make me, but yeah. <laughs> it does happen in like the first five minutes though, so then you can turn off and want something oh, you know, nice. better. Fair enough. Expedient, I like that. Prequels are an interesting beast because they're looking back, but they're but this one worked because it's moving forward. I think that's yeah. why Star Trek worked as well. I think it's like a Batman they're... Begins style prequel. It's, yeah, it's in a beginning sense. a new series. But there is a way to look back without doing anything new, and that brings us to Super 8, <laughs> which is a film wow. I really enjoyed as I was watching it. I thought the kids were great, both their characters and performances, and I thought, this is a fantastic film. And then about 30 seconds after the credits stopped rolling, I thought, hang on, no. No, that wasn't that good. I Yeah, I was uh, quite underwhelmed. I've, I've got to agree, uh, unfortunately I say that, because you know, I'm, I'm a, quite the J.J. Abrams fan. Mm. I, think he's a, I think he's a tremendous storyteller. I think he's got a, a great eye for detail. He's got tremendous taste. But this movie struck me, and I, I've said this a few times, it, uh, it's the work of a very good Spielberg imitator mm. rather than the heir to Spielberg's throne. Yep. I mean, it's... Uh, Really, what it is, um, and anyone who's watched Super Eight, you know, is that they show the uh, the short film that the gang of kids are making mm. over the end credits. Mm. Super Eight felt like the full length version of that film as compared to a Steven Spielberg movie. Like, <laughs> you know, if they showed a real Spielberg movie, then they show Super Eight over the end credits of that movie as. So it's a Spielberg Babushka doll, basically. <laughs> I, th- I think I just disappeared into the Matrix with that comment. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's that's totally right. Did you did you I, see? It? I had not seen. Super it, it's yet. basically yeah. You get the impression that Abrams worships Spielberg and he wanted to make an homage to him. But as you say, he's not the heir to the Spielberg throne because Spielberg, yes, he was influenced by directors who had come beforehand, but he did his own thing. He did yeah. something new. Yeah. And Abrams is the facsimile thing doesn't work, especially if you're setting it back in that time. Mm. It's like you're not you're not moving cinema forward. You're not. Moving, I mean, it's not your responsibility to take cinema on your shoulders and push it forward, but it just becomes a, a just disposable. A, yeah, just oh, develop yeah. your own style, and and your own style does not equal lens flares. You know, yeah. it's like get beyond the lens. And flares. I didn't mind them on in Star Trek and in Super Eight. I was 
get yeah, they pop up occasionally, yeah. and it's like, oh, really, JJ? Yeah. This is going to mm. be your thing, is it? No. Yeah, and there are a lot of story problems with the, the the whole thing with the central mystery. Just really doesn't it peters out and doesn't quite. It's not as thematically rich as the films it was influenced by. Because mm. I mean, if you watch ET or you watch Close Encounters now, what sort of primarily comes through is the family stories. Mm. I mean, and there's a real sense of. In ET, particularly, there's a real sense, sense of, of uh, lost and of, uh, uh, loss and uh, disconnectedness mm. that really sort of stems from a what I can assume is uh, Spielberg's own upbringing. Well, I his mean, whole th- theme early on was, was broken families. Yeah, mm. yeah, very much so. And it's like the the sort of alien presence almost fulfills some kind of yeah. hole. And you can tell that on. Abrams wants to do that here with mm. Super Eight, but it just feels a little bit facile, despite the good work of. Not all the young actors, because I mean, I came out of thinking, oh yeah, they all did a competent job. And then the more I thought about it, I was like, not really that memorable, except maybe for Joel Courtney who plays the lead. I thought he was very, very solid. Mm. And also, you know, Kyle Chandler who plays his father, mm. who's just, you know, well, he's America's dad, copyright. Because <laughs> I mean, that's, that's basically him, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> but yeah, if Super 8 is dividing people, then Sleeping Beauty is dividing Really, everyone in Australia, it seems, uh, the general reaction seems to be it's the greatest thing ever or it's the worst thing ever. It's very much, you know, and we tend to get one of these every month where it's just mm-hmm. right down the line. Um, the internet, rock or suck. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's that binary yeah. That, yeah, binary way of thinking. Mm. Uh, look, I, I actually wasn't sure when it finished. I had that, well, that moment of, wow, I reacted really strongly to that, but which direction? And I think I loved it with, with some reservations. It's... It's got it's got this really controlled, very deliberate Kubrickian mm. feel to it, but there are a few scenes that just feel like they're in the wrong place. It's something that I did want to talk about because I mean, uh, this is probably between me and my shrink, but I mean, <laughs> chilly clinical explorations of sexuality, you know, tend to leave me well cold. Mm. I mean, like Eyes Wide Shut, for instance. I mean, I I didn't like it when I first saw it, and time has not really sort of in, you know endeared it to me. That said, I mean, uh, the one that I do like is probably Cronenberg's Crash. But, you know, Cronenberg is such an out-and-out perv that, <laughs> that, his, that the intensity of his obsession sort of, like, come through the very sort of uh, the, the reserved uh, mood that mm. he creates. Mm. Whereas with this, this, this felt like art house by numbers. I mean, it, it's, a very, it's a beautifully put-together movie. I mean, you look at the credits and it's just a, it's a who's who of... Uh, you know, accomplished technicians. And at the end is a very beautiful, polished, handsome product that has, for me, it had little to no emotional resonance, despite the very good work of Emily Browning. Mm -hmm. She is superb. See, I I was more convinced. Uh, I think it's... I I, I don't know why it's enraged people so much. I I, I don't know. I, I, I think it possibly says things that rub some people the wrong way. Um, I think there I think is a lot of rubbing the wrong way that takes place in the film. There is, that's true. <laughs> Quite literally. Um, it's look. It's a go- as you say, uh, guy. It's beautifully put together. It's a gorgeous looking film. It feels to me like I do sort of. I can get by the art house by numbers description in terms of its look because it does. I think she really does wear her influences on her sleeve. Like there's Campion, there's Kubrick, there's Lynch, there's Von Trier. There's I think all of them mm. are, are sort of glimpsed in this film in some way or another. I think it's elevated by the fact that by Emily Browning's extremely brave, almost Von Trier-style performance. Mm. Like she really just kind of lays it all out there in terms of, well, literally. Mm. Um, 
but I also think it's it's a film with a lot to say. It's got a lot on its mind and says a lot about um, about f- uh, the kind of prescribed female gender roles that um, that you know women are being forced to play out. Well, the fact that Browning's character Lucy sort of enters into that world willingly mm. and doesn't seem to be forced into it. Well, I mean, and this mm. may be my you know white middle class male reading of it, which is probably <laughs> way off base. Uh, what do you, what do you think that sort of Says about those roles. I mean, what do you think Julia Lee is sort of trying to convey? See, I don't know. I, I think it's that sort of thing. It's like at different times in the movie, she's wife, mother, slut, um, uh, sexually mate? empowered, uh, sexually depowered, comforting, not, but very mostly submissive. And I think that it's that, like even though in a lot of situations she's trying to take her own power back, like when she goes to the bar and just randomly picks up guys. Yeah. And, and I guess that's sort of her moment to kind of reclaim some of her power back and yet often ends up feeling submissive anyway. I I thought like I thought it was really interesting the film starts off with a shot of her sitting there very submissively having something shoved down her throat. Mm. I thought that was kind of an interest, interesting way to start. Yeah. I think it is in support of the idea of, you know, sexual empowerment for women, but I think there's also a message of even when you feel empowered in some way you are still take, being taken advantage of. Well, this, it's interesting you say that because the thing that pushed over the line when I was trying to decide how strong, how my strong reaction to it, which, which direction it was going, it was when I realised how much it had to say. And it said all of those things at once, but my reading of the ending, without talking about what the ending is, mm. it felt very metaphysical in that I was looking at it thinking, this is Schrodinger's cat. It's about how something can be two things at once mm. until you try and observe it. And then the act of observation changes it. And working backwards throughout the film... I saw that she was all those things at once. Mm. She was uh, dominated, but she was dominating. When she lied, both of the lies, both the lie and the truth were the truth. They were taking place at the same time. It's very, I get the impression Julia Lee is saying that women aren't this thing or that thing. They're both things at once. Mm. Okay, and well, is, is that maybe the reason that people are sort of taking issue with the film? They would like, I mean, of course we want films to be, to have depth, meaning, purpose, etc. But, mm. I mean, uh, the fact that this do- is, isn't cut and dried, mm. do you think that's sort of upsetting people? Or, yeah, I, or I think I think most people tend to watch films on just the purely aesthetic level, and I'm not, I'm not saying that in a derogatory way at all. Yeah. I think that's mm. completely valid, and I think we all do it. But there is definitely an, a reading of that film just on that aesthetic level where it's very off-putting, very confronting and not an enjoyable experience, uh, which is why I can totally understand why people are not responding to it. So it's funny. I don't know. Like, I felt interested by it and, and sort of intrigued by its point of view, but at no point... I, I don't know. I think it, a lot of the people it's angering are possibly people that are in denial about a lot of this stuff. I don't know. It kind of spoke to my belief system about where the 21st century woman is at in terms of feminism and in terms of in terms of the struggle you mm. know well yeah from a first time filmmaker to a master of the <laughs> lyrical and ponderous and audience and a, and a fifth time filmmaker he's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> been around for decades surely he can't have made five <laughs> films uh, Tree of Life Terence Malick's Tree of Life for me this is his best since Days of Heaven uh, and I would talk more about it, but I need at least a year 
multiple viewings and possibly a look at the six-hour rumoured director's cut he's putting together before I can really talk intelligently about it because it's, it's hit me deeply, but I'm not ready to put it into words yet. It's one you've got to process. It was sure. a hell of a review. <laughs> I can't explain it. Go see it. <laughs> Pretty much. That's honestly. That's no, how I feel. One of the first things I said to, to people when I came out of the screen the other night was, I've got to process this for a little while. Mm-hmm. But uh, purely on a first impression level, I mean, as 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 the case with all with all of Malick's films, it's just it's so beautifully put together. Mm. I mean, the guy is a visual storyteller of the highest order. Mm. I mean, because th- this film is aggressively non-linear. Yeah, I mean, it is uh, a sort of a collection of images, memories, what have you. I mean, it it really is more a memory than a film. Mm. Uh, yet, story-wise, it's it's easy to follow, uh, but at the same time, it's it's a bona fide, quote unquote, art film. <laughs> mm. Yeah, no, I, no, I thought it was. Um, I thought it was amazing. Um, it's. I, I felt the start was a little shaky. I felt the first fifteen minutes kind of felt like a almost like a parody of a Terrence Malick film, like that sort of, you know, like whispers in the dark mm. and flashes of Sean Penn wandering, and mm. and I didn't feel like it really hit its stride until the the next sequence, the beginning of the dawn of. The Time. universe. Yeah. This is such a Hail Mary pass of a film. He has thrown... The, Malik has thrown this ball 100 yards and hope to Christ that someone catches it. Like, this film is about everything. Mm. It's about love, relationships, evolution, God, life. Yeah, like, it's just... It's kind of scary how ambitious this film is. The, you're right, though. The sheer ambition of it. Mm. For a good, what, 20 minutes or so? Yeah. Mm. We're basically sort of being taken through the creation of the universe. And thematically, it fits. Exactly. The family drama stuff was heartbreaking. The thing that killed, that absolutely drove a sword through my chest in this film was Brad Pitt. Yeah. Mm. Brad Pitt's character was so incredibly sad. Mm. And it brought me to tears more than once. Um, Just this, this guy who's had to adjust his hopes and dreams and struggles with this love for his family and lost dreams and so his own, own unfulfilled desires and it's a point it Pitt is not necessarily the first person you'd think, think for mm-hmm. think of for, for the, a role like this and he just inhabits it perfectly yeah. doesn't he but you're right the film just gathers such steam and 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 by the end it just floats to its climax and it's just it's a symphony it's an absolute it's it's so bold and unafraid like it's it's unafraid of looking silly or being mocked or being mm. because it's got it's just so sincere in what it wants to say, and done with such a that that lyrical beauty that we we know Malik know mm. and love Malik for. My reading of that whole Dawn of Time sequence is that uh, even if there is no God per se, mm. there's enough divine beauty in you know in the Big Bang and mm. in the development of the of the world mm. you know post that that that's God. I've never seen a film support religious beliefs and atheism so yes. intently at the same time. It seemed to be doing not 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 saying whatever you believe is fine. It's supporting both. You will come out of that film with your beliefs completely backed up. Well, that's what I find. Like I didn't I didn't get the God thing out of it at all. And now I've read reviews going it's all about God. Mm. And it's like, yeah. how do you do that? Yeah, <laughs> how do you do now, that? You now, have while to be malignant. I. Admired it and enjoyed it on a, a great, great deal. I didn't. I didn't think it was flawless. I think no. there are parts of it that 
have a bit of sag. Uh, there are parts that, uh, as you said, almost feel like a like a parody of Malick. Mm. Uh, but then it wouldn't be Malick if it didn't have those moments. Mm. So you know you've you've got to take the good with the slightly less good. Yeah, <laughs> and I felt most of that was early on. I felt once we really got into the family stuff, I was just hooked. Yeah, totally. An Australian UK co-production, Oranges and Sunshine, uh, is a film that's getting a lot of a lot of praise. I thought it was good, uh, but it really you can see the better film in there. Uh, I really think we're at a stage where people bonding by singing a song in a car. I thought we'd left that at Ivan Reitman's evolution. I thought that's the point at which we say it's time to move on. And a drama like this, it doesn't belong. But David Wenham is fantastic in it. And Hugo Weaving is even better. uh, He's got the performance of the year for me. Wow. The central character should have been more developed. um, Really? Should have had more of a journey. Yeah, that's what surprised me about it. Wow, I I really like this film. Yeah? I only felt it began to kind of slide into martyrdom a little in the last half hour. It just felt a little on the nose in that last third. But I thought the rest of the film, I thought her character was, and her her relationship to her family and all sort of, you know, kind of getting in on the investigation Mm. and and sort of... This is Emily Watson's character. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and sort of leaving her own kids a little neglected as she's sort of gotten, you know, investigating the fates of these others was really mm. interesting. What I really liked about this film was the approach that they basically structured it as a detective movie. I thought that's a real way in to this story uh, that I felt was 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 a terrific decision and keeps the most of the film powering along. Um, I agree with you. Uh, Wenham and particularly Weaving are fantastic. Watson's great as well. Um, yeah, I, I, I really liked it. And it, 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 didn't, it didn't hit me, you know, it didn't give me that gut punch, um, but it, it is a sobering story that I didn't know a lot about. So mm. I was kind of happy for the film's existence to tell okay. me about that. Cars 2, the weakest of the Pixar's, still fun. I so mean, is it official? It's the one that the breaks Pixar, the streak? Yeah. Even, even look, I, I still like the first one. I'm happy to, ad- and I like this one. I'm happy to admit it's the, it's the worst, but... But is it a lot worse than the first one? I don't think it is at all. I think, no? I think it's an improvement on the first one. Yeah. Yeah, just by virtue of it going in such a different direction. It is. I, I do love that they've taken the same characters and thrown them into a completely different film. They've basically thrown them into the man who knew too much. Yeah. Right. You know, with with Larry the Cable Guy as a as a tow truck as Jimmy Stewart. But it's got enough ideas and jokes to make it feel like a Pixar film, even if it doesn't feel as as cogent as their usual fare. Mm. And you know, visually, it's marvelous. I mean, mm. Pixar Pixar oceans look more realistic than actual oceans now. <laughs> I'm, I'm putting that out there. I mean, there were times when I was watching Cars too, going, well, "This is the movie that uh, the Wachowski Speed Racer should have been." Just by virtue of its... Oh, really? I prefer Speed Racer. Yeah, I'm a fan of Speed Racer. Okay, well, yes. (laughs) Bad room. (laughs) Good. Yeah, well played, Davis. I I realise this is a podcast and, you know, visuals are not part of the picture, but you should have seen the daggers that these two guys just gave me when I I dissed Speed Racer. I I think this podcast is over. Well, uh, we've brought back our uh, once popular middle segment with this podcast in which we discuss a uh, recent issue in film. And, um, Isn't this the one called the flabby midsection? It is. <laughs> we'll probably cut it before it airs. <laughs> it's the conflict part of the screenplay. And uh, what more prevailing issue is there in uh, world uh, film these days than 3D? And I thought we'd just... Because we'd never actually had a chance to uh, to really go into this. But... Um, 
I'm, I'm hearing a lot of rumblings recently that uh, audiences are starting to turn away from 3D because of the higher cost, because most films look dark and muddy without it, uh, uh, with it, I should say, and um, that they're starting to seek out 2D showings where they can. Now, um, I guess the, the question I want to ask uh, you fine fellows is that, one, is 3D here to stay, or and two, is it worth keeping around? I'm. It's a, it's a very good question because, I mean... It seemed like at this time it was here to stay, didn't it? Mm. You know, I mean, uh, it had been given a bit of a high-tech makeover. The glasses were actually made of plastic as opposed <laughs> to those cardboard things. Cardboard and cellophane. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think the first uh, time we realised that the Emperor may, well, was less than fully clothed was... Well, for mine, it was probably Clash of the Titans. Mm. And the problem with that was uh, it was post-converted yeah. into 3D as opposed to... Which most of 3D. them are. A lot, yeah, the majority of them are these days. I mean, I think they there are some films that actually make a point of saying shot in 3D. Yeah, I know the new uh, Three Musketeers trailer has that emblazoned. Yeah, I think Paul, An- Paul W.S. Anderson sort of <laughs> likes to... You know, publicise that fact, and hopefully it'll distract from detract from the fact that he can't direct for hell. Right. Um, <laughs> but at least I shot it in three D <laughs> badly. Uh, you're right. I mean, uh, when it comes to people forking over an extra, how, how much is it to pay? To it can be an extra f- two to four dollars at okay. some point. You know, it's like you end up paying. Like I, I remember, it cost me twenty four dollars to see Thor. Yeah. And, and is it really much. is it really worth it? It's not twenty four dollars worth a flick. And Certainly not. It's it, it's just. But I think where I noticed it was actually Disney's Tangled. Whenever I'd lift the glasses, the screen became three times as bright. Mm, okay. Um, and and I guess I wasn't that knocked out by the three D in Avatar. I, I've got to say, the only film in which the three D has really knocked me out was Tron Legacy, because I saw it at IMAX three D. Mm straight head on and that film did interesting things with well it made that transition as well from 2d into 3d Mm. when you went to the computerized world so Mm. i mean it you know story-wise it sort of made sense in that respect and it was shot in 3d which really helps yes indeed um but that's the thing is it just a gimmick or do you think in some cases it's actually it can actually like the tron legacy or even even to side with avatars defenders for a sec avatar bolster the storytelling when it works it does make it a more immersive kind of experience. I mean, it do, it does work in Avatar. I mean, you do get a sort of a greater sense of depth from what you're seeing on the screen. Mm. And it, for mine, it works better in animation than it does in live action. I mean, I, I saw Cars 2 and Kung Fu Panda 2 over the last week, both of which were in 3D. And I mean, it's not so much a matter of zoom, things coming out of the screen and, mm. you know, just like... The, they used to do in the 80s when you saw, you know, coming at you. Yeah. Or Treasure of the Four Crowns or Friday the 13th Part 3 and you've got a harpoon coming at you. <laughs> my uh, favourite my favorite thing of all time is House of Wax. Just somebody hitting a paddle ball at you for two minutes. <laughs> that's brilliant. For no reason. <laughs> has no bearing on anything that's happening around yeah, it. But, but look, we have 3D. Yeah. But we, yeah, with the, with the more recent crop of 3D films, mm. it's not really about zinging stuff at yeah. you these days. It's more about sort of creating well, that, a, a greater... Uh, yeah, depth of environment. Yeah, and that's what I thought helped Tron Legacy. It felt like you you were kind of in... That world was kind of endless within mm. the screen. Um, What's the stages of... They introduce sound, they introduce colour, they make it widescreen, they make it very widescreen. You know, all of these things have been introduced over the years, uh, mostly to keep people coming back to the cinema. 
uh, and at the time they all have their detractors. That's why I haven't been automatically on the anti-3D bandwagon, which is partly that I think cinema is going to evolve and this is the next natural step of evolution. It's also because I don't mind it. I like the 3D. I can live without it. If it goes away tomorrow, I won't miss it. If every film becomes 3D, I, I don't really care. It doesn't I'm, make a bad film better, no. does it? No, no, no. And it, but it doesn't make a good film worse. <laughs> so I'm right See, in the I middle think, of that bell curve. I think in some kinds it can. When you're looking at a dark and muddy projection and, and the, the images look... Not as good. I've never had that problem. I've I've yeah. heard I've heard that problem. It helped. It, yeah, I felt a little bit the same with Thor too. Yeah. And I just feel I find that it's this Hollywood thing of I think comparing it to sound and color is a little bit of a furphy. I don't know. I mean, I guess yes, we see things in three dimensions, but I don't know. It just doesn't feel as important. Well, as we, sound and color. We won't and, know until we look back. It'll either be an amusing fad or it'll be the next big thing, mm. uh, the next big stage. Uh, look, I don't know whether it's actually going to go away or not because there have been, as you say, those reports of people turning away. People will take the 2D option. But on the other hand, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean 4 has immediately become one of the biggest earners of all time. Mm. And a lot of that to do... It's a lot of the that 3D bump at the box office. Well, it's the 3D the bump. You know, only like 100 people saw that film and it made a billion dollars. That's how big the markup is. So I don't think they're going to want to get See, rid of no, that. But that's one of the films I've heard about people seeking about. Um, like The Hollywood Reporter have reported that people were seeking out 2D screens over mm. 3D for that. So it's it's one of these things. I like I th- I just think Hollywood think at the moment that it's this you know get bums on seats one size fits all solution. I don't think it is. I think it's more appropriate at this point in time with the technology they have. It's appropriate for certain films, and I think if they shoot certain films in three D that will benefit from the process that require that, then go ahead. But in this post converting's for the birds. They just yeah. they can't do it. It cheapens yeah. the process and it turns people against the format. But then like, you're okay, also hearing like it's a, a badge of honor on the parts of some film where you say, No, we're doing it in two D. Like you yeah, know, yeah. with Abram saying, No, he's making Super Eight in, in 2D. And Chris Nolan with Inception. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So our conclusion is basically we like three D when it's good, we don't like it when it's bad. It might be here to stay or it might be gone tomorrow. <laughs> That's the kind of decisiveness people come to expect. We're from big this on decisions here. Yeah. Um, hey, the, hey, I'm a Gemini. It's in the stars. For it's it's you the Beavis and Butthead approach. Yes, I like stuff that rocks. I don't like stuff that sucks. <laughs> you heard it here first, people. <laughs> so, Mr. Davis, please tell us who you have selected for your Hell is for Hyphenets Filmmaker of the Month. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it is really? quite exciting to hear. Yeah, the ghost of Barry White is haunting the <laughs> um, Well, I've got a bit of a, uh, a soft spot for what you might call your journeyman filmmaker. Someone who isn't necessarily an auteur, someone who's not necessarily a master stylist. Just a, a good meat and potatoes storyteller. I mean, I, got, I like guys like Martin Campbell or, you know, Joe Johnston, you know, people like that. Mm. Okay. And someone in that vein who I quite like, uh, who sort of did a little bit of an auteur reputation is my man Frank Darabont ah, I think he's very much an auteur okay then well you're, you're smarter than me and, <laughs> and, actually, and actually know what the word auteur means <laughs> I, I read it on a Fantails rapper um, <laughs> it's actually French for Frank Darabont so there you go, <laughs> so there you go. This, who is, round, who? this round to Davis was actually born in France Oh. Was he? Yeah. Trivia City. There you go. Uh, right. IMDB is your friend. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, but um, no, I've, I've been a bit of a fan of Mr. Darabont for some time now. I mean, you know, as an uh, impressionable geeky teenager in the, uh, in the 80s, I noticed his name sort of cropping up on various uh, projects as a screenwriter. I mean, mm. he, uh, 
He, uh, he co-wrote what I think is probably the best Nightmare on Elm Street uh, sequel, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, colon, Dream Warriors. Also did some work on The the Fly 2. Not that great. No. Uh, probably but he and he and Chuck Russell, uh, who's also gone on to be a, a director, he's directed films of varying qualities, He uh, they co-wrote the screenplay for the remake of The Blob. Hmm. Which is a, a fantastic, uh, it's very 80s, but it's a fantastic 80s horror movie. But it, it, it pays tribute to the 50s, uh, 50s original, but updates it nicely. Mm. And uh, yeah, I was, I was really impressed with it then and remain impressed with it to this day. So I don't know, maybe that was the first time when I realised that Darabont might be a name to watch. But it actually took him about another decade or so to get behind the camera and make his first feature. But there were some things in the interim which you knowledgeable gentlemen know a bit more about than mm. I do. Well, yes, we, uh, we've both seen The Woman in the Room and Buried Alive. Yeah, uh, The Woman in the Room's interesting. It's, uh, it's, it, it's a short film, a very low-budget short film based on a Stephen King short story from Night Shift, which establishes Darabont's connection with Stephen King mm. right out of the gate. And uh, I only found out this recently by watching a special feature on the uh, Miss DVD that um, Darabont was actually the first person to ask Stephen King whether he could make a short film from one of his short stories. Because people had asked to, you know, extrapolate them as feature films, Mm. but not as short stories, which led to King, King's unique arrangement, which he continues to this day, of allowing people to make his short short stories into short films for a dollar. Mm. He'll option the rights for a dollar. A dollar US? Sure. <laughs> so for 95 cents. Lousy exchange rate. <laughs> yeah. oh, I've priced myself out of the market. I, I'm in. Thanks, yeah. Australian I'll dollar. pay him 95 cents to make, you know, uh, trucks or something. Oh, it's no, that was it's got an odd pace to it, that short. It's, it's, it's kind of got an odd structure, but it, it really signals that he can handle King's material. Mm. And I think it, it's probably very important in in the context of Darabont's filmography that he made that short and made it well. Yeah. I think it I think it's very important in establishing him as someone who yeah, as someone who is an old fashioned style storyteller who takes his time to reveal uh, certain things and to and as uh, someone who is uh, such a fan of King's work and someone who has utmost respect for it and seems to be one of the few that can adapt it properly mm. yeah I, like I, I think the short itself you know is flawed and does show cracks but I think it's a decent little little kick off yeah which is more than I can say for Buried Alive well I, Buried I Alive it. is really yeah okay reminds me why I hate American network telly movies well yeah for those who don't know it's a TV movie with Tim Matheson and Jennifer Jason Lee and the premise is what would happen if you gave Frank Darabont a budget to make a film? And he answers it. He's that, I will deliver you a film. Uh, it's a fascinating <laughs> premise. Yeah. Uh, but, but the film itself is, as you say, quite standard. And, yeah. it's not, and there's not a lot of Darabont in it. Like, the film exists at 24 frames a second <laughs> <laughs> and can be found at your local video store. There are actors in it and it's lit. It's in eye-popping f- uh, 4x3. So. <laughs> but yeah, it's pretty much, it, it's a bit of a footnote. Um, yeah, and he doesn't write it or produce. Like he's just a director. Yeah. It's one it's of a work his, for hire. Probably his only job is work director for hire, yeah. pretty much. Um, and yeah, kind of just it's a minor footnote. Mm. But uh, it was it came just after his screenwriting efforts that you mentioned before, guy. So I think it sort of announced that hey, directing something I want to do, give me a shot. They gave him a shot. It wasn't great, and he had to wait another four years. He did, yes. In the meantime, he was also pinning episodes of uh, the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles for TV as well, mm. so he was keeping busy. Yeah. Mm. And wrote the original screenplay to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. He did. Now, the scuttlebutt is that this was actually a really faithful 
but also powerfully cinematic adaptation mm. of, of Shelley's book. Uh, and then, of course, Kenneth Branagh got a hold of it and turned it into a gooey operatic masterpiece with some uh, <laughs> choice Robert right. De Niro overacting. And, More like masterpiece um, theatre, I think. It was like kind of like that. It was <laughs> like uh, costume drama, frizzy hair explosions for television. It just it it's really bad. I'm not as much of a hater as um, of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein as as some people are. I mean, I think it has its good points. They are few and far between, and it's bad. I, I think it's ve- it's over the top, lush nature is almost almost a virtue in some respects. Mm. But that said, I mean, I would like to have seen what Darabont's original script would have been like, and how it would have been in the hands of a less florid filmmaker. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah. But he really uh, proved his own chops as a filmmaker um, and developed greatly when he directed the Shawshank Redemption. Indeed. Uh, there's a big smile on Lee's face. It's a reunite, uh, reunited with Stephen King and uh, adapting a story from different seasons. Um, well, let me. Can I, can I just tell you what yeah. really annoys me about this film? Mm-hmm. As we all know, it bombed really badly. It didn't do well at the box office and was later discovered in home video and became one of the most beloved films of all time. I discovered it before it became one of the most beloved films of all time. Uh, It was this uh, quirky movie with a weird title, and I thought, I'll give this a shot. It is my number one film of all time. It is my absolute favourite film, and it kind of annoys me that it's everybody else's too, because it felt so personal when I watched it. And even though I applaud the rest of the world for having such good taste... (laughs) It's mine. Back off, ladies. <laughs> I, it's I, m- <laughs> I, I know where Lee's coming from completely because I mean I was a, I was a big fan of uh, the the collection of Ellas, different yep. seasons mm. that uh, that's drawn from, and and in particular of uh, Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption, the story that it's uh, that's based on. I must have read that story about I don't know two dozen times mm. before Shawshank Redemption actually made it to the uh, made it to the uh, cinemas. I was just so impressed with what stayed in, but also what was taken out. Mm. Because, I mean, I think the key to Darabont's uh, talent, particularly when it comes to, you know, adapting King, is that he's not overly reverential material. Oh, he, he strikes just the right note of reverence. Yeah. He knows what's to keep it. He knows what's what to take out. Mm. There are a lot of adaptations of King that try to keep in everything. Yeah. And what works on the page doesn't <coughs> Mc- always work. Cough, Mick Garris, cough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How dare you? How dare you sully this <laughs> discussion of Frank Darabont with Mick Garris? <laughs> anyway, it just highlights a lot of... Um, of Darabont's attributes. I mean, I think it's I think it's impeccably cast. Mm. The whole thing it is a perfect storm of a movie. It's where every element comes together in a way that you almost can't plan. You know, the script yeah. is perfect. I know it seems silly to say you can't plan it because obviously he went to trouble to plan it all, but it's not until you see that final product where you realize that everything hits perfectly that there was alchemy involved yeah. and there is not a lot there's not a hair out of place i, I have the theory i watching it the other day it, there's certain times in the film where it struck uh, it struck me that it seemed to be laying it on a little thick i was like geez that's you know there a music would soar or mm. there'd be a longing shot or a big crane shot of something and then suddenly i checked myself and thought no 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 if this were a romance between a man and a woman this would be exactly the way it would be directed. And it suddenly mm. occurred to me, this film is the ultimate romance. Oh, very much so. And suddenly the whole thing just kind of fell into place for me. It's like, no, this is actually perfectly pitched. Mm. But you're right. But it's such... And, and this is a theme we'll come back to. It's such... he uh, Darabont employs such classical, old-school storytelling. 
He's very measured and he's very deliberate mm. in his storytelling, mm. isn't he? Yeah. And there's nothing overly flashy about it. No, he's not know? showing off his directorial chops or anything like that. No. He knows he's got great material. Mm. But we come to The Green Mile was his next film. Which was five years later. Five years later. it's I like to see it as that difficult second album. Mm. But I want to qualify that because it's got those familiar elements and it almost seems like a parody of Shawshank where he's saying, what worked for me last time? Stephen King, prison, beautiful, not grisly. Old-timey. Old-timey. I mean, uh, you know, John Ford once stood up and said, I'm John Ford and I make westerns. Yeah. Yeah, I'm Frank Darabont and I make period dramas you know, ba- set in a prison based on Stephen King novellas. <laughs> And it, it doesn't roll off the tongue quite as nicely, but you know. Well, I, I don't think this film should work at all, and I'm maybe in the minority. I'm actually not sure what the consensus is, but I really love The Green Mile, not not as much as Shawshank, obviously, mm. but I, I think it works completely on its own merits, and it is flawed, but it's its own beast. I th- I actually enjoyed it more on second viewing. Mm. Um, I hadn't seen it since I saw it at the movies 12 years ago, and I... Loved it more this time. Last time I, I sort of thought, yeah, it felt like a pale imitation in some ways of Shawshank. Mm. It felt overwrought. Naturally, it's going to be compared. Yeah, know, but yeah, yeah. But but also, I felt that it really hit the sentiment button too hard. Whereas this time, I I didn't feel that at all. I felt that it, it except for one or two moments, I, I felt it really carried. It, it it got sentimental at appropriate moments. Mm. The thing of it is, though, I mean, there are hopeful moments in the Green Mile, but it's almost in some ways, the antithesis of, of yes. Shawshank in that Shawshank is all about hope. Mm. Yep. And Green Mile is deeply, deeply sad for the most part. Yeah. It is. I mean, it's, yes, no, that I couldn't agree more. It's, it's To me, it's the... Like, I hate the cliche of the magic Negro. That, that, mm. yeah. That's a horrible term for a horrible cliche. And that bothered me when I started to watch Green Mile that, oh my God, they're going there. But no, it's a comment on those types of, yeah. of stories. And it's also a comment... It's a messianic tale... What if the Messiah came down in the body of this large black man at a time when we were so racist mm. and so discriminatory and we would destroy him? It's mm. such an indictment of humanity. Yeah. And just yeah. the the raw, unpolished, but just so full-blooded emotion of Michael mm. Clark Duncan's performance. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that just came out of... That came out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. and, and he's so sad. And that's yeah. like, it's not the happy magic negress even all your no. problems. Yeah, yeah. It was like this dude is play. He's killed. He ends up. He he's, yeah. dies from his own. You know, mm. from his own sadness. He, and he's dying. He's dead the, before he's, he gets in that. He's dying chair. from the moment he appears on screen. Yeah, mm. the first time you see him, he's mm. he's mm. near the start of his death. And I think that's why the film works on its own merits. Is that despite all the familiar elements, it is a very, very different message and therefore a different story yeah. than Shawshank. The moment where John Coffey is watching the movie, that just slayed me. Oh, yeah. Um, once I'm in heaven comes in, you suddenly think, oh, that's why he's crying. And now I'm crying. Yeah. <laughs> and that is, and me. that movie watching theme uh, we'll return to later because yes. that is an interesting thing that permeates his work. But I got to say the you know there is that that key collaboration with Stephen King that is so important it's absolutely the most important collaboration Darabont has had in his career for me the second most important collaboration was with the composer Thomas Newman mm. now I am I'm an obsessive Thomas Newman fan and that came from Shawshank that was during the lovely Raquel sequence where I went what what is this? I didn't know music, movie music could be this good, and I started seeking out everything he's done. I will buy soundtracks to films that Thomas Newman has done without having seen the films, mm-hmm. and I think mm-hmm. so much of the success of Shawshank 
comes down to the mood. And this is something Sam Mendes, who collaborates with Newman a lot, has said as well, that Newman dictates the mood so much. And when films are won and lost on their mood, you begin to realise just how valuable a good composer or a great composer is. So the fact that he lost Newman for The Majestic and didn't have him there is one of the many reasons, but I think the key reason why The Majestic just doesn't hit. Mm. I think The Majestic takes far too long to tell its story too. Yeah. I think I think if you look at if you look at The Green Mile like uh, you, you see The Green Mile is a 189 minute long movie and you think yikes, but there's a hell of a lot of story to get oh, through. Yeah. Mm. And there's a and there's a lot of key moments for key characters and whereas The Majestic it's kind of like I'm a storyteller, so I have to tell you every single story, no matter how mundane, about all of these characters we don't really care about. Exactly. And it's and everything is stretched out. Like, I look, I like The Majestic. I think it does have that beautiful... I think it's kind of a... It, it almost forms a trilogy of sort of old-fashioned, mm. take-their-time, old-timey style story, but it's kind of... It's where the trilogy atrophies a little bit, I think. Yeah, it's it's where it's everything's a little bit too drawn out and a little bit too twee. It's important to note that Darabon didn't actually script this. Yes, no, that and that is that another is key. Incredibly yeah. important to note. Yeah. It's the only it's one of features Michael he's Sloan, not written. Who I don't really know anything about and yeah. haven't heard much of since. Now Darabont did produce this movie, so he yeah. did kind of have a, a little bit oh, more so, of a yeah, I mean, his, his fingerprints are all over it, certainly. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, but not his script. I think it feels like he did it to kind of, I guess make some points about the McCarthy's, uh, McCarthy area and witch hunts and, and what have you. Um, it Look, it has one of my favourite Jim Carrey performances in it. I love He's how great understated well, this is. A, yeah, yeah, I think this... It wasn't the first time that Carrey sort of decided to break away from the whole Ace Ventura mm. mask kind of thing. I mean, he did that with Truman Show. And he actually had done it beforehand in other But that's projects. the thing. But in Truman Show, there's there's the Jim Carrey grins. And there's like, a, a good yeah. night. And, you but know, this is very much him in being... It's just a, a normal guy. Yeah, a bid for a leading mm. man kind He's of Jimmy slot. Stewart. Yeah, and that's, he's, he's yeah. playing a Jimmy Stewart character. He absolutely is. And, yeah. and, and what we were talking about before with Super 8 in that you've got to do your own thing. If you want to pay homage to someone, don't just try and repeat what they're doing. I think the biggest problem is that it's trying to be the best Frank Capra film ever. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's it's too over-earnest, whereas Capra's characters weren't actually over-earnest. They're, mm. they're actually quite wry yeah. and, and yeah. funny. And that's something missing from the Majestic when it's trying desperately to be this pastiche. It's, it's trying to be yeah. one of those, like, they don't make them like this anymore. Well, if they did ever make them like the Majestic, they are lost in the mists of time. Yeah. yeah. Well, they know, haven't they're, been remembered. They're, they're, a, they're a, a justly forgotten B picture. Yeah. I mean, the Majestic has good elements, as you pointed out. And, yeah, as in keeping with, with, with the rest of Darabon's films, it's, it's very handsomely made. Yep. Um, it's beautifully cast. Exactly. Everyone's yeah. really great in it. Yeah, I yeah. mean, Martin Lander gives a wonderful performance. Yeah. Yeah. But Lot, it's... Lots of good stuff in there. It's it's dull. It's yeah. deathly dull. Yeah. I mean, I've felt no inclination to stick around this small town mm. with these shiny, happy people. Yeah. But I thought there was some... I think there's some interesting ideas in the script. I think the story is a good story. It's just not a two and a half hour story. No, it's got mm. the ingredients, but yeah. it just doesn't yeah. come together. But there's a great... Like, there's a great thing about... The con- the great thing of the concept of the town that basically force a man with amnesia into believing mm. that mm. he's their lost son. Yeah. It's like they, f- this guy has no choice. He's swept them all. And one of the things I love about Carrie's performance is he's always got this note of this isn't right. Yeah. Behind his eyes, it's very subtle, but it's this very uh, he's very happy that everyone's kind of being really nice mm. to him and meeting everybody. And it's like, and it's not just like oh I can't remember. It's like there's something behind mm. the eyes, even when he's enjoying himself. That's like there's something. 
not right. Yes, I do agree with you. It's it's mm. over earnest. Yeah, the it speech is, at the end doesn't land like the speech. I mean, it's meant to all hang on this massive speech he gives about. Mm communism and you know being yourself and being true to ones you know very careful not to support communism yeah that they, they, they yeah. go overboard trying that yeah it just it doesn't quite hit mm. it but is, it is lesser darabont but it does continue another theme which is how movies affect us and he's obviously someone who grew up watching movies because you look at the way uh Rita Hayworth in Gilda in, in Shawshank Redemption, the people watching that, as you say, that scene in Green Mile where he's watching From Top, Top Hat, Hat yeah, yeah, Fred and Ginger. And The Majestic is it's all based around... in The Majestic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, the no. Majestic is the name of the movie theatre in this small town. That, that brings the town back to life when it's restored. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's where the heart is. And, and I, do, I do love that continuing theme through Darabont's work that, you know, well, the sheer love of cinema. Something I like is that the guy is a real legitimate geek. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I, I dig him for that. I'd heard for years about what a horror lover he was. Like, he really loves his horror. And I thought... Mm. He does seem to love Stephen King, but he always adapts the touchy-feely Stephen King. And, I, yeah, I would always think... Horror, the Shawshank guy, really? But The Mist kind of shows that he, that's what he's been sort of aiming towards. He really wants to do a proper horror. Okay, I've got a theory here. Yeah. Because when I, was, when I said before that, um, that Darabont's an auteur, I think he's two auteurs. Because something happened between the majestic and the mist and there's a part of me that believes that thing is September 11 because he suddenly turns into there is nothing in the mist that or the subsequent television show the walking dead which he had a lot of which he has a lot of control of and we'll talk about that later there is nothing in those projects that resembles anything in the first three hmm. it's it's the mist is such an angry film it is yeah it's, it does it does have an underlying message of of hope in it Barely, very barely. I mean, I think oh, he, th- I think he throws in one or two little glints of sunlight as a bit of a sob because, yeah, the, you're right. There's this unremittingly grim and bleak view of humanity yeah. and of people who spout religion in order to whip up fear. Mm. And I haven't read the short story The Mist in a long time, so my memory of it is well. I think I think Darabont has added a lot of his own worldview into it. Yeah, I mean. And- King's Miss Short Story. It's one that I love. It's and when I heard that uh, it was going to be ad- adapted and adapted by Darabont, I was super stoked. <laughs> um, uh, but it is very much a sort of a straight up and down fifties uh, monster movie. Yeah. In in short story form, in novella mm. form. And yeah, Darabont adds these layers to it. Yeah, these mm. uh, socio political layers. Yeah. But not in a heavy. Well, occasionally in a heavy handed way. But mostly, they seem to stem organically from the situation and from the characters. Yeah. And there's things... It's interesting you said monster movie, because he originally wanted to make it in black and white. Well, if you... Yeah. if um, I don't know if it... On the American DVD. It is available on the American DVD, and it may be available on the Blu-ray that's yeah. available locally. You can actually... He, he graded it to, uh, to black and white. I'd and it actually works a treat. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's it's weird though because it doesn't feel like that because I, I heard about that before I saw the film although that's cool but watching the film you don't get that giddy crazy 50s monster movie no, feel from it you it's just get this anger like about chair. look at what we've become we're tearing each other apart with fear and horrible counterintuitive dogma it's, it's a movie that begins really clunkily I think I actually think the characters, the dialogue, the way in which people are immediately forced into situations you'd like them to build up to. And it, it really started 
in an odd way for me and it coalesces as the film goes. I think the ending is superb. Oh, wow. And it pretty much just yeah. scales up. It's gut punch after gut quality. punch after gut punch, isn't it? Absolutely. But one thing I noticed is that all of his, and this this goes back to what you were talking about before, Paul, is that his previous films have all featured leads who are perfect. They're not flawless, but they are they are perfect men. And Paragons of virtue, if you will, sort of, I guess. Yeah, well, exactly. They'll do exactly. the right thing. Yeah. Tom Jane, his character in this film, every time he makes a statement, it's often contradictory, but it's always without a lot of evidence. He says immediately, we all have to stay inside. You're crazy if you go outside. Then later on, we, sh- we have to leave the store. You're crazy if you stay in the store. He's our lead and he's making these grand statements and I have a lot of trouble going along with him because he doesn't seem to have any more evidence other than... This is where the story needs me to go. Mm. But you realise he's been wrong the whole time. Yeah. By the end of the film, you realise all of these decisions he's made, these firm statements he's made, have been completely incorrect. Yeah. But for mine, it's in keeping with just the the nightmarish scenario that yeah. they're in. It's totally consistent. But he's totally that. right about... it. Was it him or was it Toby Jones's character that said that there's basically a Jim Jones situation happening here and that she is going to whip up a cult? And she does. I think oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's like if we stay here, we're gonna end up dead. But but her character, Marsha Gay Harden's character, the mm. stuff she says is unsupportable. And to be honest, the stuff that Tom Jane's character says is unsupportable mm. as well. It's just a different kind of unsupportable. Yeah. It's from a different point of view, and it's what I thought was a flaw of the movie. I realized was in fact a very very savvy statement about human beings. And having you know having heard you say that nine eleven suggestion, yeah. that that fits completely with how this film plays. Yeah. War on Terror. Are you yeah. with us or against us? Yeah. Are you, um, I, think that, I think someone actually might say that at that point. Mm. Yeah. And stylistically as well, it's, it's, it, it takes a bit of a different tack as well. Yeah. It's a bit, more, a bit more rushed, a bit more immediate. The thing There's that, those bizarre um, push-ins it constantly yeah. does. It almost looks like it's a still frame and then yeah. you push in within that. Mm. What's it, what it's drawn from or what inspired it from what I understand is that Darabont actually did some direction on, on The Shield. The TV series The Shield, uh, yeah. which has a lot of sort of uh, you know run and gun cinematography. I think they might have used the same cinematographer for The Mist as they did for those episodes of The Shield. Mm. And but it's also in keeping with the uh, with the tone of the story as well. It is more sort of agitated. Yeah. So what I was saying before about just talking about that ending, uh, that wasn't Stephen King's ending. No. That's Darabont's ending. So it's absolutely consistent with this con- conversation about Darabont as an auteur. Whereas that is a very clear statement he is making. Yeah, yeah. And it's apparently King said that he was annoyed, not that Darabont had changed the ending, but that King himself hadn't thought yeah. of that yeah. ending. Well, the, yeah, the ending, of the, the ending of King's short story or King's novella is, is very open-ended. I mean, yeah. It basically ends with four or five people in a car heading out into the open road. They don't know what lies ahead. The mist is still covering the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got some inclination there is something huge and Lovecraftian yeah, in the It's mist. very Lovecraftian, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Even yeah. the design of the monsters but in the film. Yeah, Darabont takes it uh, four or five steps further. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah, I'm, sort of, I'm, I'm loath to reveal what happens because, yeah, it's, it's an ending that sticks with you. It's a film that sticks with you for mine. I mean, the first thing I thought when I left it was this was the, the best horror movie of its kind I'd seen in 25 years. It was the best of, a kind, of its kind I'd seen since John Carpenter's The Thing. Wow. Yeah, it still sort of haunts me to this day in parts. And it leaves you excited as to where Darabont was going next as a filmmaker. Yeah. And it's interesting that he went to TV the, well, that's the with thing, The Walking yeah. I mean, Dead. Well, as someone who started as a screenwriter, who's uh, 
I think he maybe realised that uh, TV is becoming more and more of a writer's medium. He's going to have a bit more clout. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and tell a bit more of a story. Yeah. Funny thing is, you uh, now I've seen all six episodes of The Walking Dead, mm-hmm. the first so series. Same. Um, which is tremendous. I loved it. But the first episode is one of the, m- the most kind of still contemplative kind of episodes of TV I've mm. ever seen. Mm. So much of it is stillness and just wandering. And, yeah. and for something that is called The Walking Dead and you anticipate a, a zombie bloodbath mm. or something like that, it is... <laughs> like, did Robert Brisson direct, yeah, this, yeah, uh, yeah. direct this zombie movie? <laughs> <laughs> and again, though, it's that it's it's a little bit of that old time storytelling coming back. But again, yeah. it follows that same similar structure to the mist of you know a group of people mm. who are struggling to de- to not destroy one another. Yep. Yeah. In the face of a grave threat. Absolutely. And look, I was so sick of zombies. Like I said, I don't yes. want to. I don't want to see any more zombies because I don't think anyone has anything new to say about it. And I don't think he really had anything new to say about zombies. I just think he took a classic setup and did it so well. Yeah. I didn't care. Yeah. I didn't care. There was, a, and, and as you say, the statements are about humanity, not yeah. about zombies. So that's that's probably why the show works so well. Yeah. Mm. Now for mine... And he writes four of the six episodes, I think. He directed the pilot, and I think he yeah. wrote three or four of them. I think so, yeah. And for mine, I mean, going beyond the pilot... I don't think this. I don't think the remain remaining five episodes quite live up to its level. Mm. Mm. There are parts where it's it feels kind of clunky. There are parts where it feels kind of obvious. There are parts where it just feels kind of naff. But uh, generally speaking, I mean, it's it's a very it's a very intense show, mm. and it's also a very uh, intelligent show. Yeah. As, if for, for all the reasons you pointed out, I mean, it is primarily a character drama. With the odd bit of flesh eating, yeah, <laughs> and and it does get quite gruesome. It gets mm. very gruesome, and again, actually. has a lot of the same points to make about humanity as the mist does. Yeah, which still makes me think he is he's still making points about this. It's phase two post yeah. War of terror. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's definitely so, Frank Darabont version two point yeah. yeah, so maybe Absolutely. he's. I think he still has a lot of faith in the inherent goodness of humanity. There's a lot of stuff in in Walking Dead where people are looking at yeah. one another. There's a lot and, more positivity. The, yeah, in Walking yeah, Dead the. In the uh, the better angels of our nature do sort of shine through. Mm. I find it, it it's rare that you see an auto do such a sharp left turn. Mm. And mm. I don't know what he was doing in those six years in between The Majestic and The Mist, whether he was just trying to get The Mist up. I know that he was willing to make The Mist for a much lower budget I think, yeah. than what was offered because as long as the ending remained intact, he wanted to make that film because of the ending. And in the end, he made it for, I think, 25 million US mm. with Dimension mm. when he was getting offers to do a lot more. For a lot more money with bigger stars and a different ending. And it's like, no. So it was clearly a point he wanted to make. Yeah. Um, So whether he spent those six years just kind of gestating the mist and making that statement and getting angrier. Um, I know. I, I know. He wrote a uh, a version of Indiana Jones, the fifteen Indiana Jones he did, film, yes. which was apparently great, and George Lucas didn't like it. So there's that. Um, Submitted without comment. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> but I think yeah, I, I think it's it's incredibly interesting that he's in the second phase of his career, and I'm and I'm intrigued to see where he goes next. Mm. As am I, and yes, it's been fascinating going on this journey through. Darabont's filmography. It is. Well, he's three for three when it comes to King, and uh, he's got a couple of other interesting things under his belt as well. So, yep. thumbs up, Frank Darabont. <laughs> well, not thumbs up, Frank Darabont. <laughs> <laughs> that, would, that, would, that would be intrusive and, quite frankly, lewd. 
<laughs> I can't think of a better note to end this podcast, John. I can think of so many. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Guy. The pleasure has Thank been you, mine, Lee and Paul. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure, and we'll see the rest of you next month. Keep watching stuff. Yeah.